Okay, good evening. Let's go ahead and start. Good evening, good evening, good evening. Uh, welcome to this evening's presentation on Christian nationalism. <clears throat> now, uh, some of you, maybe all of you, uh, are aware that I'm doing my uh, doctoral um, degree and the doctoral the thesis on why CRT, uh, Christian critical race theory, should not be utilized in the PCA. And if you've spoken to me personally, you've also heard me talk about a whole bunch of other uh, cultural issues of our day. And so right now, some of you might be asking the question, uh, Dean, why do you gravitate towards dealing with these kinds of issues uh, like critical race theory, cultural Marxism, secularisms, and all the other isms that are so prevalent in our culture today? Well, the answer to that is providence. By God's providence, <clears throat> I attended a seminary uh, that was started by a PCA pastor and who was very much engaged in cultural issues, so much so that he started a major uh, cultural issues conference in this church, um, and that church was Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Every year, that man, D. James Kennedy, um, would host that conference, and as some of you may know, it was titled Reclaiming America for Christ. Now, I'm not saying one way or the other if I'm okay with that title. I'm just saying that's what he did. Now, as I mentioned, this same pastor started the seminary I attended, uh, Knox Theological Seminary, and I would venture to say that it was because of D. James Kennedy's influence on Knox Theological Seminary that Knox offered a 30-credit 30 uh, credit Master's of Arts degree in Christianity and culture. So now you might ask, well, Dean, but you didn't, you didn't get um, a Master of Arts in Christianity and culture. Your Master's was a divinity. Well, the thing is that the entire 30 credits of the Master of Arts in Christianity and culture was a requirement at Knox for you to obtain a Master's of Divinity. Um, so, and then additionally, when I started and I decided to pursue um, my Doctor of Ministry, um, I chose the same track, Christianity and culture. And so, you know, if you hear me talking like that, it's in my DNA. So having said that, let me state right up front that the things that I am sharing is not the official position or anything like that of Piarchard Presbyterian Church, uh, the session of the church, um, the pastoral staff. This is me sharing with you what I've read, researched, and now are regurgitating to you. So um, it's also, even though you heard me talking about Knox Seminary, again, I am not representing Knox. I'm not speaking on behalf of Knox. I am speaking, again, and sharing with you from my own research and what I've looked into, okay? So having said that, let me pray and let us, let me ask something. Father, we thank you for this time together and ask that you would uh, be with us even now. Uh, you have called us to, to make disciples of all nations. You have called us uh, to engage the culture and we ask that you would give us insight concerning how we are supposed to do uh, that. Um, guide our hearts, give us clarity of mind and thought as we deal with this particular issue. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, if someone were to ask you, we're talking about uh, Christian nationalism, and if someone was to ask you, um, are you a Christian nationalist, how would you respond to that question? Well, Vody Bakum, currently the Dean of Theology at African Christian University in Lusaka, Zambia, used to be a pastor in, in Texas, answers this question by saying, it depends on who's asking, why they're asking, and what they hold to as their definition of that term. Now, me personally, I don't go around laboring myself as a Christian nationalist, just like I don't go around labeling myself as, as a Calvinist or anything else for that matter besides Christian. But you should know that invariably if someone in society today is asking you that particular question, are you a Christian nationalist? Um, your answer after you get them to explain what they mean by that term will usually be, no, I am not. And Vody would go on to say, why do I say that? Why do I say depends, that is, on what the person means? He says, he asked, because more commonly than not, it's used, this is Vody speaking, as a tool. It's a pejorative used by folks who are often against any kind of Christian influence on society. He then noted, there are many people who recognize that the folks who are labeling folks as Christian nationalists, I might say CN from now on, are more often than not people who are at war with Americanism. They're ashamed of being American. They demean America as a place that's done all kinds of horrible things. And I would personally add to that that they assert that many, if not all, of those things were done in the name of Christianity. So Vody concluded by his thought by saying people, meaning Christian nationalists, are pushing back against that mindset and saying no, that's not who we are. And so the logical question to that assertion, that's not who we are, um, is if, if that's not who you are, uh, then who are you? What, what are you about? And what is the basis for your position, your assertions as a Christian nationalist? So this evening I'm going to attempt to provide the answers to those questions as gleaned from some of the most prominent CN advocates. I'm also going to continue communicating the opinions and assertions of those who stand in opposition to this ideological perspective. Among them will be some professing Christian leaders. And so to accomplish this goal, I'm going to speak through the grid of three overarching headings. First, what is Christian nationalism? The definition is all over the places you'll see. And is there a biblical support for Christian nationalism? Uh, uh, third, uh, is there precedent, a precedent set before us as we look at history in the United States? So first, what, is, what exactly is Christian nationalism? Tom Askell, the president of the Institute of Public Theology, shared some presuppositions that are typically held by the opponents of CN. Uh, paraphrasing here, he said, they assert that CNs all believe that the Bible ought to be wrapped in a flag and America is in covenant with God just as they were, as he was with Israel. Uh, that assertion, by the way, was recently made by Lauren Boebert, uh, current U.S. representative, who I agree with with most policy stance but that particular position, I just don't, I can't see that. There are all kinds of other stuff, really wild, along with presuppositions and accusations that are held or asserted 
This is a him speaking. Some folks believe that if you, for instance, are against abortion, don't subscribe to or agree with LGBTQ advocacy or doctrine, you have a problem with drag queen story hour, I believe all of us would be in that camp, then you absolutely also believe that the Bible ought to be wrapped in a flag that America is in a special covenant with God unlike any other nation except Israel. They believe these things must logically cohere. They come together. They ask then a search that the, uh, that understanding then turns into a play to marginalize and demonize those who hold to a true understanding of practice of what he would call Christian nationalism. So in addressing the presuppositional de uh, definitions or opinions I just shared, advocates of CN will contend that there's a clear connection between the advocates of CRT, wokeness, a new racism under the guise of racial reconciliation of the church, and those channeling stuff like Marxism. Uh, CN advocates assert that the folks who push those ideological views and practices are most likely to be the ones who strongly oppose any vestige of Christian nationalism. They don't want any Christian influence in America whatsoever. CN advocates also contend that the strong opposition that has recently emerged is nothing more than a shift away from a failed attempt to lead others down the paths of the isms and theology I just uh, mentioned, like CRT, wokeness, and the like. And by this, they mean, for example, that there was a time when you heard CRT advocates saying things like, oh, it's only taught in law school. It's only in law schools that you find that. And then that was debunked. And then, it, you know, when they came up, oh, no, it's being used in schools. No, it's only history. And that was debunked. And, and on and on and on. And so as these things were debunked, they moved the goalposts and they went from being on the defensive to going on the offensive and coming up, rehashing this term called Christian nationalist or nationalism and sometimes white Christian nationalism as a pejorative, a bad word to attack those who are for biblical Christianity being promoted in uh, the United States of America. Now, when it comes to what some would assert to be a more succinct definition of Christian nationalism, there is no shortage of answers. In, in her book, for instance, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Fate and Fractured a Nation, Kristen Dumez, professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University, defines Christian nationalism as the belief that America is God's chosen nation and must be defended as such. Dr. David W. Scott, United Methodist historical researcher, uh, puts forth this definition. American Christian nationalism is trying to define the United States as a native white Protestant nation and exclude all others, Catholics, African-American, indigenous peoples, immigrants, Jews, Muslims, etc. Shane Claiborne, author of the book Jesus for President, Politics for Ordinary Radicals, puts forth this definition. A different gospel, which is really no gospel at all, a confusing perversion of the gospel of Christ, it uses the language of our faith and the symbols of our faith, but betrays the heart of our faith. 
It uses Jesus as a mascot to disguise racism, xenophobia, and hatred. Michael Horton, who many of us would know because he is in Orthodox circles with us, uh, he is from the Westminster Theological Seminary, he says this, patriotism is saying that America, wherever your country is, is special to you. I think nationalism is saying America is special to God, is part of his plan, not just his providence, but part of the outworking almost of a redemptive history. America is a redeemer nation. Here I believe that every, based on what I've read, I believe that every CN advocate like Torba and Isker, authors of Christian Nationalism, Biblical God to Take in Dominion, Vodi Bakum, Tom Askell, Stephen Wolfe, and just about every other prominent conservative CN advocate uh, I looked at would respond to those definitions that I just gave you like Askell did. And here's what Askell said. I said, I, if that's what CN is, if that's what Christian nationalism is, then you're right. It's evil. It's horrible. And Christians should have nothing to do with it. But then that would go on to assert that that would do nothing. They would go on to assert, rather, that that would do nothing to address the real issues at hand. And in that order to have a discussion, that in order to have a discussion, a definition that better describes their position, the CN's position, is in order. A definition that can be agreed upon and that should be shared, right? And so Paul Miller comes along. This, he is an opponent of Christian nationalism. He's a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. And he wrote a book called Religion of American Greatness. So again, now, he is an opponent of CN, of, of Christian nationalism. And, but he has put forth a definition that William Wolfe, an advocate of Christian nationalism, agrees with. And so you have people that are completely different end, polar ends of the pole, and they're saying, Miller puts forward, Paul Miller, uh, this professor of international affairs at Georgetown, puts forward this particular definition that, quite frankly, I agree with. And so do these other advocates of CN, right? So Miller says, Christian nationalism asserts that there is something identifiable as an American nation, distinct from other nations, that American nationhood is and should remain defined by Christianity or Christian cultural norms, and that American people and their government should actively work to defend, sustain, and cultivate American Christian culture heritage, and values. Now, there's three parts to this particular definition. First, there's the fact that there's a distinct American nation. The Bible, if you look at Genesis 10, 11, you'll see that the Bible does recognize distinct nations, does recognize the sovereignty of nation, does recognize borders, even as we're going through the book of Joshua, even now, as they're going into the promised land, God is going to give specific areas of the land to different tribes. And when they were matriculating uh, through the wilderness and one particular nation would not let them go through, God said to them they, they had to respect what those people were saying. Even when people entered the land of, of any particular Christian or Jewish people, I should say, Israelite, 
They had to come into the land and they had to observe all the rules of the land. They could not come in and do as they wanted to. So there's a distinct American nation as he's asserting in this definition. The second thing is the American na uh, nation is defined by Christian norms and should remain that way. Uh, now, until recently, that was always the case. You know, uh, the Bible used to be in schools. If you go even now into the Supreme Court, you'll see behind the heads of the Supreme Court justices in their chambers, you'll see a picture of Moses holding the Ten Commandments and lawmakers on, flanked on his left and right. And you'll see on the doors of the Supreme Court uh, chambers, you'll see a, the Ten Commandments blazing on the door. Our money says in God we trust. Law enforcement, what I've dealt with, had on their uh, seals, in God we trust. So throughout uh, American history, and you'll see that even more as I look at things further, there was Christian norms that were intact and that were being followed and observed in the United States of America. So a Christian nationalist would assert that that is the case, that this country was founded upon Christian principles and we should seek to continue to go down that road. The third thing is the American people and their government should actively work in this definition to defend, sustain, and cultivate American Christian culture, heritage, and values. And this now is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the angst comes from, particularly since you had a new address of separation of church or state. The way that separation of church or state is articulated in our culture today, it was never the way that it was ever uh, meant to be in history in terms of documents and everything else that you see, all right? There is a wall of separation, and that is what Thomas Jefferson said. And the reason Thomas Jefferson said that, when he was out of country, he was in Europe at the time, and the Danbury Baptists wrote to him because they had some concerns about the church, I mean the government infringing upon the church. And he wrote to them that there was a necess necessarily a wall of separation between the government and the church. And the Supreme Court utilized that particular saying that he said. Not any precedent, not any constitutional law or anything, but they used that particular thing as their foundation to give us separation in church and state the way we have it in this day and age. So the second question, so the thing that I want to go on to ask now then, is there a biblical support for CN? Is there any such thing, right? Now in the last three years, this is just an aside, an observation. In the last three to four years, some folks started saying things like this. Romans 13 says we're supposed to obey the government. Who are you not to submit to medical recommendations and mandates that they espoused. Well, I don't have to recount all the ways that that particular issue became a wedge in churches. I remember Richard Pratt came here and he said that as he was visiting churches throughout the pandemic, that was the thing that was wedging people. I mean, we had to, to address that and I think we did very wisely by having you know, mass service, no mass service, different things, we didn't bind anyone, anyone's conscience, um, but the issue was whether or not the government had the right to say those things to us. I'm going to cover that or talk about that 
a little more, more different when I go on. I mean a little more when I go on, okay? Well, the interesting thing that happened through this situation, though, and the one thing that I would join Tom Askell, the president of IOPT Seminary, in asserting is that it caused people to actually start looking at Romans 13 and then concluding, huh? The government is God's minister, not for bad, but for good. So you see what happened? The thought that everything is subject to God was reintroduced into the public square and sadly in some church circles who lost sight of that very fact. So by people addressing Romans 13, the same way how some people would turn around, don't judge so you're not judged and so on and so forth, they tried to use Romans 13 and in doing so, they didn't realize that they were introducing, reintroducing into society a big, big issue or thing, item that we should be aware of. Tying into this particular train of thought, in his presentation on, on this subject, Vodi Bakum reintroduced the biblically grounded idea, idea that there are three spheres of government, government jurisdictions, the family, the church, and the civil government. The family, he noted, has the rod, the church has the keys, and the government has the sword. He argues, and I believe rightfully so, that the church has the responsibility of ministering to and discipling the other two jurisdictions. Think about that for a second. If the other two jurisdictions don't have the word of God, and we have the keys and the word of God, how are they going to be discipled? How are they going to hear the gospel if the church is not the one that's speaking truth to them? So every government entity, all three of those entities, has their own jurisdiction and authority. And he, he acknowledges that there is some overlap. For instance, the government can tell you, uh, and some of you need to hear this, to stop speeding. <laughs> but he still has a distinctive sphere of influence and role that the other is not to impinge upon. And during the pandemic, we saw a blurring of this. And even now in today, I would argue that we see a blurring of this when the government tries to hide from parents what they want their children to learn and hear and are not allowing the, the parents to be uh, the people, the, the, the parties that are over their own children. So all that I said, in, all, in saying all that, here's the thing, there must be a fundamental that I'm going here. There must be a fundamental understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord over all these spheres of authority. During the pandemic, those spheres were blurred, but doesn't matter. The point that I'm making here is Jesus Christ is Lord over the family. Jesus Christ is Lord over the civil government. Jesus Christ is Lord over the church. So what are the implications for that as a culture? What are the implications for that in terms of how do we, how we engage the culture? Vodi Bakum in his recent address of this issue reminded, again, his audience about the threefold use of the law. One, to bring about conviction. And I talked about that in my law sermon. When we look at the law and we're like, man, I can't, I can't do that. And we need something great, and that something great is Christ. The second is a rule for life for believers. And the third is to be a pedagogical influence and in culture. That is to restrain evil in the world. We need to be proclaiming God's law to everyone. You may not have your brother's wife, John the Baptist said. 
And get this, when John the Baptist spoke that he was speaking to us as a man of God, called by God to be the forerunner for Christ, he was speaking to the person that was in civil authority. Civil authority. He was acting as the conscience of the civil authority. Okay? So when you say separation of church and state, and you remove that ability of the church to be the persons that ministers and disciples the other spheres of influence, the question becomes, what do you have? And the answer, brothers and sisters, is what you see around you today. Is what you see around you today. And so Christian nationalists would say that, again, we, the church, we individuals, as individuals, have a role to play as salt and as light. We're the only ones that have stewardship of the word of God and must speak it to culture because that has a restraining influence. Now, does that mean that everyone in society should be forced to be a Christian? The answer to that is absolutely not. Blackstone's commentary on the laws of England declares no, we're not a theocracy. But if our laws are not going to be based on God's law, what else are we going to use? They must be based on God's moral law. Natural law is God's law. Laws have to have a moral foundation, and it's either going to be man-centered or it's going to be God-centered. Notice that I'm not using the terms of father and son or any covenantal moniker for God. I'm purposely utilizing the same word that was used when scriptures said, scripture said in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Elohim. I'm specifically speaking because, again, in Genesis 1.28, where you have what's called the cultural mandate, again, it uses Elohim. And again, it goes back to the fact that God is sovereign over all his creation. And if God is sovereign over all his creation, how should those who are called by his name engage that creation? That is what a, a, a Christian nationalist would ask you to consider. So now, having said that, there are prominent questions, there are very prevalent questions that are asked when you bring up this subject. And, and bro, brothers and sisters, as I've studied this, you know, this is not dealt with a lot in Christian circles, but my goodness, I could sit here and talk about this particular thing because of how much material is, is, is involved that I could just go on and on and on, but we don't have the time for that. And so I'm going to ask questions that you, that might be percolating in your mind right now, because these are prevalent questions that are asked like that. So are Christians obligated then, by scripture, to subscribe to a particular type of government? You know, here in the United States, uh, people will, will sort of tout uh, democracy as being the thing that's God-ordained, the thing that's the best thing that God has given. I would argue that democracy is the best thing around, but I would say to you that scripture does not mandate, regulate, or provide one form of government over the other. What I would say is that whatever government exists, it is under the authority of God and must therefore be guided by God's principles. And God's people are supposed to be looking to that end. That, that's what I would say about that. There's all types, just so you know, 
There's all types of nationalist efforts afoot right now. So when you talk about Christian nationalism, when you talk about Christians being engaged in, in the culture and so on and so forth, understand that the LGBTQ movement is a nationalist movement. You don't believe me? You see Supreme Court issues uh, or, or battles concerning the fact that a person didn't want to bake a cake. You used to be where the, the moniker used to be, you know, we just want to be happy, just let us alone. And to now it's you must use these pronouns. You must use these things. So the gate of hell is pushing in our culture. And the question becomes, as Christians, how do you engage that dynamic? How do you engage that dynamic in this nation? How, what was this nation founded for? What does it look like for us to step out into the public square to promote more of a moral society? Like I just said, remember when the word on the street was, we just want to be left alone, we just want to be happy, and then all of a sudden now we have same-sex marriage. Right? And the church was supposed to say, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. How many in the churches said that? You know, most churches are advocating that and saying, oh, what we got to do is love. What we got to do is such and such. That's not our sphere of influence based on what I just said. Is that true? So my answer, how do we move forward as salt as light in this age? The answer to you might be, seem strange because it seems to you, it might seem to you that I'm saying, oh, we need to go out there together and raise stink and da-da-da-da-da. But guess what? The means to change society has always been the same. It's to be, find a healthy gospel teaching church and get organically involved in that church. The church itself will push back against the darkness through a commitment to the gospel. It's outreach and it's evangelism. As individuals, we are supposed to be equipped. As individuals, you are supposed to be equipped and you are supposed to then become the school board members, legislators, all facets of society. When you are equipped, the person that's up here as myself, it says equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And where is ministry? It's not just in the church. It's not coming to the church and waiting for people to come to you. It's actually going out into the neighborhood. It's actually going out and being engaged in local, state, and federal government. It's actually wherever you are in your sphere of influence, preaching, teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you see something, call it out in love. Individual Christians will then be equipped to operate the two in the, other, in the two other jurisdictions of civil and family government. Now, some don't like to hear this, but it is literally what the church needs to do. That and speak against the darkness in the public square. Question, is Christi cultural Christianity good or bad? The answer is both. When cultural Christianity endeavors to take the place of God, it becomes idolatrous. But it does not mean that we're not supposed to walk out into the culture in the manner that I just said, and promote Christ and call that which is wrong, wrong. Call darkness, darkness. Are there other Christian nations in existence today? In his presentation, Vody noted that Zambia, where he is, Africa, has a Christian 
constitution. It literally says this is a Christian nation, which is so funny because according to, you know, the opposition, they say that when you say it's a Christian nation, it's synonymous with being white supremacy. Now, you do know that the population in Zambia is black as, as you know, the darkness, right? So there goes that particular thing. Should nations aspire to be Christian? Vodi, yes. How? Recognize what I just said. Jesus is Lord. And what does Proverbs say? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And if that is true, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, why wouldn't we want our neighbors to know Christ? Why wouldn't we want our public spheres to operate with laws that were founded and established through a biblical lens. If laws that were established through a biblical lens were still adhered to in every sphere, do you know that you would still be able to leave your doors open today? Do you know that all the things that you see, so many things that we see happening around us today would not have been happening if Christians were salt and light in the midst of darkness and did not retreat and allow the world to beat the jaws of the church instead of us beat the gates of hell? Again, this is my position. This is me speaking um, here and my thoughts and observation. Tam Askell, Tom Askell says, if this, listen to this, if this generation that we're in today tried to recreate the greatness of this nation today, they could not do it. Using the principles that are God, that as our guide today, secularism, there is no way that we could recreate the country this nation that we have today. This nation that we have today was, is the way it is because it was founded on Christian principles by people who had a heart to, to move and advance the kingdom of God in every sphere of culture. And you don't have to take my word for that. When I get to the end of this, I'm just going to read when my third part, the precedent. Is there a precedent that's set before us? I'm just going to read some of the things that have been said by, some, by people who came before us, okay? So here's something that I want to say to us. Don't look, and, and this is me regurgitating Tom Askell, by the way, okay? Not me. But don't look for the next great president. Society is built by families guided by God's spirit and his word. Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name, not, not of the government, not of the civil this, not of that. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, right? Repent and turn to Christ. Then revival will come. Then we would be on the path to restoring things the way God would have them. And if things continue to go the way they do, at least we know what we're doing is right in God's sight. I think when I say that, I think of the Apostle Paul. The man got beaten. The man got all kinds of stuff. But man, did he stop engaging culture? Did he stop spreading the gospel? Did he stop going out into in, amongst pagans and doing all sorts of stuff uh, to represent the God that he served? No, he did not. He went out. He didn't stay in the synagogue and have people come to him. He went out into the sphere of influence to which he was sent. And we likewise are supposed to do the same. Jesus went out into the spheres of influence after leaving the glories of heaven 
and coming here. Now, what is the ethos of American culture? And by ethos, I mean the characteristic spirit of a culture, era, or community as manifested in its beliefs and aspiration. And I'm not talking about in this day and age, because if you ask what the ethos of the American culture is right now, you would have to say it's not very good. But I'm talking about the founding, and I understand that there was slavery. I understand that there's always been bad in the United States of America, but there's always been bad in every nation on the earth because of sin. But America has been great in some of the things that it has accomplished and it's done. And again, I would never say America is on the same par with Israel and America is in the Bible. I mean, and America is all these sorts of stuff. If you are thinking those kind of things, then you need to question or, or, or sort of look at that are most, more closely. But if you do believe that you're called to make disciples of all nations, that you're called to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion, if, and that same thing is repeated again after Noah got off the ark. If you believe these things, then the question becomes, what and how should you act? So what is the ethos of the American culture? Here, I don't want to provide you with my words or thoughts, but would simply provide some sayings and writings of those who came before us in America. So I'm going to do that on, the, on my last heading, the precedent set before us. In his book, Theological Interpretation of American History, C. Greg Singer states, it is impossible to understand completely the history of a nation apart from the philosophies and the theologies which lie at the heart of its intellectual life. From there, he goes on to cite the Puritans who are often thought to have been completely detached from civil arena. Puritanism, the prevailing theological and philosophical, theological and philosophical system, not only in England, but in most of the colonies founded during the 17th century, is the key which unlocks the meaning of colonial history as a whole. It pervaded not only the religious life and thought of most of the early colonists, but their political, social, and economic life as well. Nothing could be more misleading than the contemporary notion that Puritanism was little more than a Sunday religion which had little or no influence on the daily life of those who professed it. The direct opposite was actually the case, for it permeated colonial life to an amazing degree, not only in England, but in the colonies to the south as well. And Puritan influence was not lacking in the founding of Virginia and the Carolina colonies. For most of the colonies along the Atlantic seaboard, Calvinism was a kind of theological common denominator which gave great consistency and coherence to life, to colonial life as a whole. Singer goes on to conclude, as many CNs do, that the American nation has been defined by Christian norms and should remain that way. As evidence of this, the following excerpts or examples are provided from various sources. The Mayflower Compact on November 11, 1620, America's first great governmental document, the Mayflower Compact, was signed by the pilgrims before they disembarked their ship, the Mayflower. This covenant was so revolutionary that it influenced every other constitutional instrument or document that followed it in America. Here was what it said, in the name of God, amen. We whose name are underwritten the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James by the grace of God of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, 
defender of the faith, having undertaken, listen to this, for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, Dubai, these presents, solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. said. Moving forward two centuries, in 1846, the Supreme Court case in the state of South Carolina, the case of the city of Charleston versus S.A. Benjamin, an individual was cited as having willfully broken an ordinance which stated, no person or persons whatsoever shall publicly expose the sale or sell any goods, wares, or merchandise whatsoever upon the Lord's day. Now listen to what the prosecuting attorney wrote as the premise for his case. And think about it, whether or not a prosecuting attorney would do something like this today. He wrote, Christianity is a part of the common law of the land with liberty of conscience to all. It has always been so recognized. If Christianity is a part of the common law, its disturbance is punishable at common law, meaning that civil should be prosecuted for violating that. The president is allowed 10 days to sign a bill with the exception of Sunday. The legislator does not sit Public offices are closed, and the government recognizing in all things the observance of Sunday is one of the usage of the common law recognized by our U.S. and state government. Christianity is part and parcel of the common law. Christianity has reference to the principles of right and wrong. It is the foundation of the morals and manners upon which our society is formed. Remove this. That is the moral laws and manners. Remove this and they would fall. Morality has grown upon the basis of Christianity. Now listen to these excerpts taken from, that's the state. Okay, now listen for this excerpt taken, uh, or rather by the rulings, the people who ruled in this, the Supreme Court unanimously in that state. The Lord's day, the day of resurrection to us who are called Christians. Now notice that. The Supreme Court of this state is made up of Christians. Okay? Now notice that, okay? They themselves refer to themselves as Christian in an official government state documents. So much for separation of church and state. Without any hesitation stemming from their understanding, by the way, of the establishment clause. Now listen to them going on to address some of the things we would refer to as immoral today. What are acts of licentiousness? Within the meaning of this section, must they not be such public acts are calculated to shock the moral sense of the community where they take place? Think drag queen show hours in our day, LGBTQ practices, and the like, when they say this. Must they not be such public acts are calculated to shock the moral sense? The orgies of Bacchus among the Asians were not offensive. At a, were not they offensive? At a later date, the carnivals of Venice, debauchery, went off without note or observation. Debauchery took place and nobody said anything, nobody even cared. Listen to what he says, such could not be allowed now. Why? Public opinion based on Christian morality would not suffer it. What constitutes the standards of good morals? Is it not Christianity? There certainly is none other 
say that cannot be appealed to that being Christian morality. And I don't know what would be good morals, the day of moral virtue in which we would live in an instant of that standard, if that standard were abolished or to lapse into darkness and murky night of pagan immorality. That's where he's saying we would end up. Now moving from the state supreme court, I mean, from the, yeah, from the state supreme court to a decision in our U.S. Uh, supreme court. Listen to Justice David Brewer's statement as he wrote the unanimous a majority decision for the court in the 1892 case of the Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States. If we examine the constitution of the various states, we find in them a constant recognition of religious obligations. Every constitution of every one of the 40 states contains languages which either directly or by clear implication recognizes a profound reverence for religion and an assumption that its influence in all human affairs is essential to the well-being of the community. This recognition may be in the preamble such as is found in the Constitution of Illinois, pointing to another Constitution. After providing all sorts of evidence of Christianity's prevalence throughout society, pointing to different Constitutions, different local laws, throughout the entire society, he continued, if we pass beyond these matters, if we go beyond the, the legal realm, if we go beyond the things that I'm referring to here, uh, to view of American life, just looking at American life as expressed by laws, its business, its customs, and its society, we find everywhere a clear recognition of the same truth. Among other matters, note the following. The form of oath universally prevailing, concluding with an appeal to the Almighty, the custom of opening sessions of all deliberative bodies and most conventions with prayer, the prefatory words of all wills, in the name of God, amen, the laws respecting the observance of the Sabbath with the general cessation of all secular businesses and the closing of courts, legislators, and other similar public assemblies on that day, the churches and church organizations which abound in every city, town, and hamlet the multitude of charitable, charitable organizations existing everywhere under Christian auspices, the gigantic missionary associations with general support and aiming to establish Christian missions in every corner of the globe. Prevalence of Christianity. These and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterance that this is a Christian nation. In October 1798, while writing to the military president, while writing to the military, their president and founding father, John Adams wrote the following, and many of you have heard this, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion, avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry which would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Get that picture of a whale going through a net and breaking it, all right? It is true that the church is to minister, <clears throat> wait, our Constitution, let me go back, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Now, hearing these quotes, and I could have given you 
hundreds more. I had to pick the ones that I wanted to share. I asked you if it, if it is true that Christians are to be salt and light, one preserves and the other dispels darkness. If it is true that the church is to minister to the other two jurisdictions of government, then how should we live? Are we to remain silent as darkness covers the face of the land? Or are we to engage our culture? I want to recommend to you, um, again, you know, I strongly sort of lean on one side, but I want to recommend to you that you look at the book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, by a man named Stephen Wolfe. Christian Nationalism, a Biblical Guide to Taking Dominion and Discipling Nations by Torba and Iska. America's, well, no, a theological interpretation of American history. You'll see all sorts of quote concerning this stuff. I think I have, we have five minutes. If anyone wants to ask a question, this is not a sermon, so please feel free to do so. Yes, sir. Christian nationalism has been around since the 1800s. So just like with everything else, there's nothing new under the sun. It just, you know, recycles. Um, so, yeah. Don't forget now, if someone asks you, are you a Christian nationalist, your first response should be, what do you mean by that? 